You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. My grandfather was hospitalized as a young man. If I recall correctly, he was already married and had kids, but he was still early in life. And I don't recall the reason that he was hospitalized, but he was in the hospital for several days. And while he was there, a couple of guys from church, a couple of deacons came to visit him. And if you've ever been hospitalized and, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of up for visitors, you can, you know, your heart can be warmed when people come to see you and, and care for you. And, and as long as they don't overstay their welcome, right? Because you've got to get some sleep in between blood pressure and pricks and all the things like that. But, but imagine what he felt like. Here are these couple of the deacons come down from the church to check on him and care for him, probably pray for him, you know, all those kinds of things. You can imagine the encouragement and the, 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 the light that gets shined into a dark situation in that moment. Well, as the visit proceeded, things took an unexpected turn. When the deacons asked my granddad if he would still be able to pay his tithes, given time away from work in the hospital, and the bills that would accrue from the hospital. You can imagine how he felt then. Crushed, hurt, saddened. They weren't so interested in him. They were interested in his money. And when he left the hospital, he also left church. Not just that church, church. And entered into a season in his life in which he was not walking with God. He was far from God. One of the reasons we often cringe when the topic of stewardship or finances or tithing or generosity maybe comes up in church. We know it's code language, right? (laughs) And we get worried and we get kind of shifty and we think, what are they going to talk about and how cringeworthy will it be? Because we know that so in so many of our experiences, it has that kind of manipulative, greedy vibe, doesn't it? We talk about the guys on TV and the false promises that are made. The problem is that when the church talks about stewardship or tithing in a way that sounds manipulative, or greedy, it pushes people away. Not just from church, but from God. From Jesus. And we don't want to be the kind of people who push people away from Jesus, do we? Now, there are a couple different ways the church responds to this situation. The first one is this. They just stop talking about it altogether. Like, we know people get easily offended when we talk about money, so let's just not. And I have colleagues who, who wrestle with that, and I get, I get the struggle. And I've talked with people in churches who like, would like their pastor to actually talk about some of these things, but the pastor is concerned about it, like hesitant and fearful. And so we just don't. But the trouble with that is, right, if this is like it's all over the Bible, as we're discovering, Jesus had a pl- plenty to say about generosity. 
And so if we kind of withhold that from ourselves and from the church, then we're saying, here's this stuff in the Bible, but like we, we got to hold that at arm's length, our arm's length. Right? And we miss out on God's word to us, and his words are words of life. And we withhold critical aspects of discipleship from the body of Christ and miss out on aspects of God's character that he wants to make known. So that's not a good option. You're like just ignoring the topic, is, that's not a good way to come at it if those are the consequences. So there's another option. What's the second option? The option is to allow the way we talk about money, finances, stewardship, tithing, tithing all that, to be shaped by the way the Bible talks about it. Right? We want to be Bible people. We want to hear from God. And we want to let the way Scripture talks and speaks to these issues shape the way that we talk about them and speak to them. And the thing that I discover again and again and again as I come to this is that when the Bible talks about finance or money or offerings or whatever, it's always in the larger context of God's generosity. He's the God who gives. He has abundance. He's, he's over the top. Consistently. Like He gives life and He gives resources and He gives salvation and He gives rescue from slavery like we just heard Him remind the Israelites in this passage. And ultimately, He gives Himself, doesn't He? He gives Himself. We're going to break bread today because Jesus gives us the life of God in His body. It's just over the top. It's just this abundance of generosity. And so we, if we kind of hold those things side by side, right? Greed on the one hand, generosity on the other, we're in a position to see that greed drives people far from God, but generosity points people to Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, Deuteronomy, the Gospels. No matter where you go, it's the same. Greed drives people away. Generosity says, this is what God is like, and we know it because this is what Jesus is like. So we're in Deuteronomy. And the people of God are in a unique place in their lives, in their experience of God. They are discovering that He's a generous God, but they've also discovered He has expectations. So they were in Egypt, right? They were slaves. And God comes to them through Moses and delivers them. Takes them out of captivity. I've heard your cries. I've heard your sorrow. I've heard your grief. I've heard your complaints. And I've come to keep my promise to Abraham. Pack your things. It's time to go. And he rescues them. He saves He delivers them. And, and he has these, these mighty works and these stunning acts of power. The Nile turns to blood. The Red Sea is, de, is parted. They go through on dry ground. He defeats their enemies. They, like they are helpless. But he defends them. He's their champion. He's their rescuer. He brings them to a mountain. He says, I want to give myself to you. I want to enter into a covenant with you. And I'm, I'm going to be here for you. I'm keeping my promises that I made to Abraham. Your family is going to be my people. And I'm going to make you a blessing to, the, to every family in the world. I want, God says, I want, I want to bring you to myself and give myself to you. 
And they said, that sounds like a sweet deal. Because yesterday we were slaves, now we're the people of the living God. How generous is he? How kind is he? How over-the-top abundant is he? And so he, he sort of gives them the parameters of the relationship. There are certain expectations. You can't worship false gods. You can't take my name vainly. Like You can't drag it through the mud and just sort of throw it around like an like for kicks. You got to care for one another. You got to honor each other, honor each other's possessions. You can't just go swindling and stealing. Like if you're going to be my people, then your character has got to embody my character. And God says, I always treat people the way they ought to be treated. Always treat people with mercy and grace and kindness. And so I want you, so you can't kill people, right? Ten Commandments, we're tracking here. You can't take their stuff or their wife. And so they think that's great, sounds good, we're good, like that's yeah, no problem, God. These aren't weird commandments, they're not outrageous. Good, let's do it. And so they do. And they very quickly dif- discover, though, that they have hard hearts and they're fickle, that they're sinners, <laughs> just like the rest of us. And they commit idolatry, they worship images made that the, the golden calf, they make this thing and they worship it. They wind up out getting ready to go into the promised land. God says, I'm going, let's do it. They're like, no, we're too scared. We don't trust you. God says, all right, we're going to spend some time in the wilderness. And they're complaining like we had all, when we were slaves in Egypt, we had all this great fruit, melons and leeks and things. We're going to starve out here. And God says, I'm going to drop bread literally from the sky. You see that rock? It's about to be a wellspring of water. Trust me. Every day I will meet your needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And God says, I'm going to drop it on your heads from heaven. And they complain. And they complain. He's got to get their attention. So they wander for 40 years. We get to Deuteronomy. They're kind of on the edge of the promised land. And it was common when you're in a covenant relationship, like a king and the people, you reread the covenant from time to time. Because it's important to remember what you're in for, right? And what you're committed to. And so Deuteronomy is kind of a, like, let's renew this. Let's do a covenant renewal thing. We're going to read the law. Deuteronomy literally means second law. So this is kind of the second reading of the law, uh, the covenant, all the commandments. And so that's what we have here. So God says, you're going to get in the land, and I'm going to bless you. Like, it's going to be good. Uh, but here's, here's the crucial piece. When you get there, shortly, there are going to be people around you who are vulnerable. There's going to be foreigners. There's going to be widows. There's going to be orphans. And those people, particularly friends in this society, in, their, in the ancient society, those folks had no security. Right now, now um, I mean, people who are orphans and widows, widows often have very little security. Um, but we do offer support. Like after my dad died, like we got his social security. Not a lot, but there's some support. In the ancient world, your neighbors are your social security. There was no national benefit that came with that. 
There's no retirement plan. There's no pension. Like the widow doesn't get her husband's pension. Right? And so God says, here's what we're going to do because we have to look after the vulnerable and you don't have that sort of structure. When you go harvest your fields, leave some behind. And that way, people who are passing through on their way to somewhere else can pick up some grapes off the edge of your field and have some food. There's some dignity that comes with that because you're not like just picking it in hand. There, there's some work. They're going to have the dignity of work to get out there and collect and do some harm. But you're sharing. I've blessed you, God says. I want you to share that with vulnerable people. There's going to be widows in your midst. They don't have a security network. There's no structure for that. Well, there is. It's this. <laughs> if you forget some wheat in your field, don't send somebody out there to get it. Just leave it and know I'm going to use it to bless somebody. Orphans, widows, you hear, and we heard that recurring phrase. And again, right, these are vulnerable people who do not have a means to take care of themselves because of a death in the family or because they're, they're like, if they're a resident alien, it means they're not, like your kinship group is your security. And God's saying, this is what it looks like to bless the nations. This is what it looks like to bless all the families of the earth. I'm going to give you abundance, and you use that abundance to make sure the vulnerable people in your midst are fed. And he connects it to his generosity with them, doesn't he? So twice God says in these few verses, remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. And then he says again, when you, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, don't glean what is left. Leave it for the alien, the orphan, and you said it a minute ago, the widow. And he says it again, remember you were a slave in the land of Egypt. I'm commanding you to do this. And he expects them to connect the dots. When you were vulnerable. When you were chained. When you were required to make bricks and bricks with no straw. I provided for you. When you couldn't take care of yourself. When you couldn't do anything for yourself. When you were oppressed. When you were wounded. When you were restricted. When you were confined. When you were slaves. I redeemed you. And you're my people. And now that you've discovered that aspect of my character, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find creative ways to embody my character to the vulnerable people in your midst. It's not complicated. We probably would like it to be complicated. Then we could pretend we don't understand it. <laughs> right? Instead of having the Scriptures demand something from us. Here's what God is like. He redeems slaves. Here's what His people are like. They make sure orphans are fed. This one's personal for me. Because as I mentioned a little while ago, most of you know this, I lost my dad when I was 10 years old. My mom's a widow. My brother and I are orphans. Moved from Huntsville to Opelika, because that's where she was from. Moved in with my grandparents. 
started visiting churches. We weren't Methodists before this. Assemblies of God, which may explain some things for you. <laughs> um, but we started going to the Methodist church, and some of you heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating, because the Methodist church in Opelika, Trinity, cared for us. The pastors, the Sunday school classes. And I don't mean just like, hey, we're here for you, platitudes. I mean, like, we didn't have a lot, and her Sunday school bought me glasses for my face. My mom's Sunday school. Or made sure that my brother and I got to go to summer camp so my mom could have a week of rest. Like, just, you know what I'm talking about. You need the rest sometimes, right? Single mom. And the church, like, I don't know that they'd been reading Deuteronomy, but they knew that God had been kind to them and it was their vocation to embody that and offer it. And so when the orphans and the widows show up, that's what they did. They didn't wait on somebody else or some program or just send them off to that other thing and let them take care of it. They said, you know what? Jesus loves us and we love you and this is what our God is like. So that's the kind of people we're going to be. And that was crucial for me. Their generosity pointed me to Jesus again and again and again when I was 10, when I was 12, when I was 15, when I was 17, when I was 19 and the Lord Jesus Christ called me to this vocation. In that church, when I was worshiping one Sunday morning, and for the first time in my life, I could hear the Spirit say, here's what I want you to do with your life. Their generosity shaped the next 32 years of my life, and it will continue to shape the next 32 that's what the generosity of the people of God. It's not laws that we just sort of, yes, we're obeying the Old Testament. Like, that's not the point, is it? The point is, God is saying, I, need, I want you to know my abundance. I want you to know how much I have for you. I want you to know how much I love you. I want you to know, like, I've redeemed you because I love you. I know you're a mess. You're a sinner. You've you worshiped a golden calf. A very short time after I rescued you, like rescued you and, and, and credited that thing that you built with your hands for rescuing you. And God says, even though you've done that, I love you. It's inexplicable. It's not merit-based. It's not you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. They're slaves. They have nothing to offer Him. They're idolaters. And God says, I love you. That's it. And I'd like you to embody my love to the widows, the orphans, and the resident aliens in your midst. Your generosity will point everyone you meet to me. Now this takes some pretty concrete shape in the book of Ruth. If you haven't read Ruth lately, or have forgotten what it's about, it is the story of two women, primarily. Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, were from Judah, lived in Bethlehem. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to it. Bethlehem. Everybody knows why Bethlehem's important, right? Advent's coming up in a few weeks. Christmas, Bethlehem. So they were from Bethlehem, uh, but they moved to Moab, right? So 
out of the Holy Land, for, like foreign country, and, with their two sons. And while they were there, Boaz and Naomi, uh, their two sons married some Moab- a couple of women from the surrounding area, Moabite women. One of them was named <laughs> Apha, if I get that right. The other one's easier to say. The other, she's Ruth. While they're there, Elimelech dies, and both the sons die. Tough season. And so you've got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and the other one whose name is difficult to say. And Naomi says, says to them, go back to your dad, your, your, parent, your mother and your father. Remember, in the ancient world, your, your family unit is your social security. And this widow has nothing to offer you. I got to go home and try to figure that out for myself. And so initially they're both like, ah, we're going to come, we're going to do it, we're going to stay with you. Orpah, I should have looked at my notes, Orpah is her name. We're going to stay with you and we're, gonna, we're, we're there, we're good. And she's like, no, no, it's good. So eventually, long story short, Orpah goes back to her family, but Ruth says, I'm with you. Your people are my people, I'm like, I'm there. So she goes, the two of them go back to Judah, to Bethlehem. But they don't have anything. But they understand that ancient social security (laughs) means your kinship group cares for you. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go to some of your family and try to take advantage of this Deuteronomy 24 gig stipulation. And maybe there'll be some stuff on the edge of the field and we'll get a few grapes and a little bit of wheat. We can make some bread and we'll have a little something to eat. And so Ruth, who's... A Moabite comes back to Bethlehem, so now she's a foreign or a resident alien. Remember that language in Deuteronomy, resident alien. And her mother-in-law is a widow. So this is ticking all the boxes in Deuteronomy 24, right? And so Ruth goes out and she starts working in the field of a prominent rich man from Elimelech's family. So he's a cousin or an uncle or a something. And Boaz takes notice of her and begins to ask, and he finds out, because you can imagine how quickly word spreads. Well, she's from Moab, but she came back, and she's been caring for Naomi. She's working to try to meet the needs of her mother-in-law. And he's impressed and offers her favor. And notice, and I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading through it the first time, but he goes above and beyond the expectations in Deuteronomy 24, right? She's out there harvesting, but he says, you know what? Like, don't worry about just hanging out on the edges. You just come right in here with my people, take whatever you can carry. If you get hungry, I've told them to make sure you get fed. If you get thirsty, I've told them to make sure you have... There's nothing in Deuteronomy about making sure that the the strangers who show up on your property to borrow... like." To, to, to take the wheat that you've left on the edge of the property. Like, we all have no trespassing signs. They have come and take, like, come and take signs, right? Like, there's no expectation that you show up, like, with a picnic lunch. But that's exactly what Boaz says. I'm going to, like, I'm going to feed you. And I think the reason is he understands the point of Deuteronomy. He knows the point isn't, well... 
it's frustrating to me, but this lady shows up at my house and the law says I've got to make sure she has some grapes and some wheat and I'm going to like, I'm going to go by the letter of the law, but you know, don't let her take too much because I got to sell that stuff. We got to have the, like cash flow revenue. That's not his posture, is it? Not at all. Because he understands the character of God. He understands the point of Deuteronomy. That the point is not ticking the boxes of I'm a good Christian and I've done my share and paid my tithe or done like helped the poor. He understands the point is God is abundant and generous and he is kind. And I want to embody that to those who are like literally going to starve to death if I don't. He could have done it differently, right? He could have said, nah. I'll do what the law requires, but nothing more. He could have said, I don't even want to do that. But he embodied the generosity of God, didn't he? And here's what happened. And this is why Ruth is in the Bible. Let me just read the end. Long story short, uh, Boaz and Ruth get married and have a son. And, and they name him Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. David's the one to whom God said, I'm going to make sure one of your descendants sits on your throne forever. And the promise was kept. Remember we were talking about Bethlehem. When Jesus was born in that city. Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Jesus. Now go back to Boaz. What if he'd been a minimalist? I'm going to do what i got to do to get by. I'm going to tick the legal boxes, but nothing more. What if he'd been greedy? Where would David be? Where would Jesus be? His generosity not only points to Jesus, there's a direct line all the way to the manger, all the way to the cross. Greed gets in the way of that, drives people away. Generosity. Godlike generosity draws a straight line to Jesus Christ. So when we get to Jesus, he's constantly doing generous things, isn't he? He's healing people out of his abundance. He's feeding people. You just got a few loaves and a couple of fish, Bring me the 5,000 plus. 
He's never saying, what will I eat if I give this to you? You live on the fringe of society, you're a sinner. Come to my table. Come to my table. And he tells stories about generosity. Tells a story once about a young man who wished his father was dead. So he goes to his dad and he's like, hey man, I wish you were dead because I'd really like my share of the inheritance. His dad was rich. And when he says, I'd like my share of the inheritance, like you don't get that till he's dead, implication, I wish you were dead. His father, though, is a generous man. He says, all right, I'm going to give it to you. Here you go. Most families, you'd probably all of a sudden have some sort of a feud. Thanksgiving dinner would be very awkward if you even got together. But this father doesn't, he doesn't regard the boy according to the offense. Does he? Like, all right, here it is. You can just imagine this kid like flying down the driveway in a new convertible, convertible with dollars shooting out all over the place, right? He goes off and he's partying like, let's go to Vegas, man. Gambles and spins and parties and before long, you know the story, there's nothing left, right? Winds up working in the pig troughs. And if you're a good Jewish boy, the pig troughs not where you want to be. And he starts thinking, you know, my dad's servants, hired guy, like the guys who work on the farm are living better than me right now. My father is a generous man. I'm going to go talk to him. And so he goes. Turns out his dad's been waiting. We're not surprised about that, though, because we already know this guy's character. He's generous. He's waiting, and when he sees his son coming, he takes off in a sprint. Now, here's the thing about that. In the ancient world, dignified men don't run. In today's world, those of us who played on the softball team learned we don't run because it hurts really bad. Amen? Trent, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, buddy? I'm just now recovered, actually. But in the ancient world, you, didn't, like, you, you could run, but you didn't do it because it hurt. You do it because it's undignified. Aristotle said, great men don't run because it looks like there's necessity. It looks like, it looks like things are in jeopardy. Like, you got to get there. you got to get there fast. Like, if you're a great man, if you're dignified, you move at your own controlled pace. This guy takes his dignity, hangs it on the coat rack, and takes off. Takes his son who wished he was dead in his arms and throws the, a bigger party than that kid ever thought he'd be able to buy in whatever the ancient version of Vegas was. Over-the-top abundance. Over-the-top generosity. Big brother wasn't happy about it. He's already wasted all the, that so much of your money, and now you're going to waste more on him. But that son hadn't learned his father's character yet, had he? 
And he hadn't learned to embody his father's character yet. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. And I think we do that. A lot of times we think prodigal means like wasteful. It really means like over-the-top extravagant. And the point of the story isn't that the son was extravagant. The point of the story is that the father was. The father embodies prodigality, extravagance. And Jesus is inviting his contemporaries, Jewish people of God, who don't want to share their inheritance with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles who farm pigs, He's inviting all of them to come to the bountiful table that He will set on behalf of His Father. Our prodigal God who's extravagant and abundant. He's not driving people away. He's not saying, you hateful boy, you hurt me. wasted everything. He's not building walls between him and his son because he knows that greed and that kind of frustration, like that drives people away from God and he wants his boy to go to Jesus. And Jesus embodies a God who wants to bring us to himself. who offers himself. Generosity is not about making budget. It's not about ticking the I'm a good Christian box. It's about embodying the character of the God who gives everything, including himself. And when the church makes it about manipulation or greed or bills or whatever, we easily drive people far from God. But when we embody the generosity of God, and, and this is not like this is, and this is the thing, and this is I, like I want this to land all the way through this series. It's not just about money. Yes, that's important. But it's not exclusively the issue. Am I generous to people when they hurt me? Like that dad and his son. Like God is to me. Am I generous with my energy and with my time? Am I generous with my words? Am I generous with my heart? Am I generous with my being? Like the financial side is just one small category in this larger thing where God says to His people, I redeemed you. I've lavished my abundance on you. My perfect love. Now I want you to embody that to your neighbors and, your, and the nations. It's holistic. It's all of life. It's everything. It's, it's all of it. And when we make it about do your duty, 
pay your share. If you don't, you're not a good Christian. When we love the money more than Jesus, we push people away from God. When we embody his generosity, the nations will flood to his throne. After that hospital visit, my granddad left, left church. I don't know how long, but it was a long time. The good news is God didn't leave him, but was patient and gentle. A lot like that first century dad standing on the front porch looking for his boy. He called, he wooed, he reached, God did. And eventually, by God's grace, my granddad came home. To Jesus, to the church. And he became, friends, one of the most generous men I have ever met in my life. And I don't mean just financially. He was generous financially. But he had this generosity of spirit just bubbled up and overflowed. It's difficult for me to even think how to describe it because everywhere he went, he wanted to show kindness. He wanted to talk about Jesus. He wanted to pray. He wanted to worship. He could not get enough of his Bible because he experienced the overwhelming generosity of God. And it brought him to Jesus. And he became someone who embodied that, not only to his family, but to his Sunday school class, to his church, to complete strangers. I'm talking complete strangers. He died of cancer several years ago. And as he was going through treatments, he'd show up for whatever they were doing at the cancer center. And he went with a purpose to make sure whoever he met, whether it was the waiting room or the nurse, got prayed with. Let me talk to you about Jesus. Imagine the impact people being drawn to Jesus through that generosity of spirit. And isn't that the kind of people we want to be? The gospel says that's the kind of people God wants to make us. And the gospel says he has the grace and the power to do it. Let's be the kind of people who are always, always, always pointing to Jesus. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.